Hello and welcome to Safer Stronger Kids, the podcast. I'm Caroline Ellen. I'm a social worker and parenting coach. My goal in my business and in this podcast is to help you raise kind, resilient young people. And it's to walk alongside you on your journey towards safer, stronger parenting. Thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to another episode of Save the Stronger Kids, the podcast. I'm Caroline Ellen, and today I am absolutely delighted to introduce to you Anna Cusack. Anna is a motherhood revolutionist. As an author, podcaster, blogger, and speaker, Anna reaches thousands of women every year with evidence-based information and inspirational, actionable content. Anna combines her knowledge in areas such as traditional postpartum care, breastfeeding support, sociology and exercise physiology to guide women through their transition to parenthood and early years of mothering. Her services include post-birth planning, in-home and online post-birth support and mentoring for mothers and the professionals who work with them. Her book, Mama, You're Not Broken, Unmasking the Unspoken Emotions of Modern Motherhood is due for release in April. Thank you so much for joining me today, Anna. Mm, it's such a pleasure, Caroline. Thank you for having me. So, Anna, I know that you're at the final stages of writing your book. Is that right? You're in the editing phase right now? Yeah, home, home, home stretch. <laughs> That's amazing. What are the key messages that you really want mums to take away from your book? Like, what was your goal in writing it? There are two messages that are really central and key, I believe. The first is given away in the title that no matter how not enough, inadequate, deficient, whatever, mothers may feel and and are made to feel that they're not broken. And the second is that their experience of motherhood matters because they matter, not because they are a conduit to their child's life. So I set about writing this book after I went, to a, I went to a bookstore and I was looking for something and I think that something was the book to really unpack, explain, describe the experience that, that I was having as a mother. And I went to the parenting section and there's a zillion books on pregnancy and birth and different discipline paradigms and um, weaning and toilet training and congratulations, you're going to be a dad. And there was not a single one about what motherhood was actually like. And I did end up finding one in a self-help section and it was like how to slay motherhood and do all the things at once and be everything to everybody. And I was like, this isn't what I was after. This is like the exact opposite of what I needed. I don't want to slay things. I just want someone to tell me that I'm okay and that I'm not a failure. Yeah, collected a whole lot of my own stories. And I actually started writing as a, not as a journal, but I was writing like short snippets of the situations where I would look around and go like, is it, am I the one that's crazy? Is it just me or is like, or is the world messed up? And so I'd written about maybe six or 8,000 words or something like that. And I just had this like realization that the job of that, that book was done 
and that that was only for me to read. It was almost like doing my own therapy and that the message that needed to come out was something that was going to help other people, not just help me. So I set about writing this book and I, I sat down and I made pages and pages and pages of just single words of different emotions and feelings that mothers that I was speaking with were using to describe how they felt. And it would be like overwhelmed and judged and anxious and unsure and it just kept going and going and going. And I, I looked at them and I kind of picked out 10 key things, 10 key emotions and feelings and started really exploring those in detail and what, looking at why they come up and in what situations they come up and what they can teach us and how, how it has come to be that these are the, the feelings that mothers are experiencing that might be different to how, how fathers might be feeling and how perhaps how health systems and professionals and education systems and all those things maybe haven't kept pace with the dramatic change in what the experience of motherhood is now compared to a decade ago and a decade before that and before that and before that. So the book consists of 10 chapters um, and I'll see how many of these I can actually... I always seem to get to eight or nine and then, and then forget a couple, um, but it's looking at... <laughs> at guilt as a big one, that toxic combination of mum guilt and shame that's not, it's not parent guilt, it's mum guilt. Like dads don't experience this like, like mothers do. So there's guilt and uncertainty, overwhelm, anger, grief, feeling invisible, feeling bored. And there's you know, now I'm almost there and I can't remember the last couple. But the final one is contentment because I think contentment is a taboo topic as well because, you know, if we say that I'm actually really content in raising my child and I consider that to be my, my career and my life calling and my full-time job, then it is almost this sense of um, people either looking at you like you're crazy or like you have no ambition in life or like you're a leech on a partner or a welfare system or whatever. Um, yeah, that's it's kind of just not really allowed either. Anything that's between the like absolutely dazzling highlight reel of motherhood and the I'm so exhausted, this is awful, anything in between isn't really like allowed to be spoken about, you know? Because I bring to this my background as, as a health professional as well as somebody who is interested in sociology and I did the Motherhood Studies Practitioner Certification course with Dr. Sophie Brock last year as well and that really gave a lot of context to how my experience fit with the broader like social structures um, that, that mothers experience their world within um, and then through the lens of traditional postpartum and post-birth care, like how has is, how is motherhood traditionally been experienced and then, um, yeah, so like the hormonal and physiological things as well, what's happening on a physical level 
to your body, what's happening inside the rewiring of your brain as you become a mother, what's, what's shifting in your identity and how, how you see and be in your life, not only what you do for your children and for your family. You raised so many good points and you've actually just reminded me of a conversation that we were having inside my membership recently about matrescence and it was so amazing to realise that most women have never heard the word matrescence and are unaware of the concept. Yeah, it's a really key thing, isn't it? Absolutely. So just simply hearing about the word matrescence and understanding that it's this identity shifting time this period that you go through and it's a good 10 years where your identity shifts and transforms so much and it's challenging and it's going to expand you and it's bumpy and it's rocky and that's exactly how it's meant to be but it's really hard just knowing that there's this phase and that it's called that and it's just as significant as adolescence just to know that just to know to expect that and have a name for it Exactly. It's almost, it's almost like those messy middle years. Exactly. That's right. We know that adolescence, when, when kids enter adolescence, we know to expect them to change and shift and to have periods where they doubt themselves and that they're seeking their identity and all of this stuff. But we don't know to expect that about motherhood. We don't have the word matrescence in our lingo. And so because we don't know to expect that phase, we expect just to sail into it and that it will all be smooth sailing and it will be fine and then when we don't experience that we think we're broken and just to simply have a name for it is so powerful yeah so matrescence is a really interesting concept because when we have sometimes when i have conversations about it people can see how like how the identity shift happens when you go from woman to woman who is a mother um, and how the extra responsibilities and things pile on. But it's really interesting to note that things are actually happening physically inside of you, the same as the same as puberty and adolescence changes the body. Yeah, the brain, um, the brain changes are just as big. Yeah, too. absolutely. Yeah. So when you're pregnant, the um, hormones from the placenta go around and basically like prune off a whole lot of connections in the brain that aren't relevant to the baby's survival. So like. This explains why I went to go and get some cash out to put in a birthday card and I had the same card that I'd had for years and years before that and I just couldn't find my pin. I could not find my pin code anywhere in my brain and it got to that point where it's like, you have one try left or the machine will eat your card. And I was like, I was like, okay, I'm just going to write an IOU note in this card because this isn't going to work out. So this is like... What we think of as baby brain, where you're a bit forgetful, is actually the start of this matrescence period. And it's, we're pruning off all these neural connections so that your brain has space to upgrade. And the areas that it's upgrading are around emotional connection, reading body language, all the things that you need to care for a nonverbal communicator. Because if you haven't noticed, babies don't talk, right? So we need to, we become better at all of these things. but the social expectation is that the mother is going to be a natural addict and that's not the biological reality. So through pregnancy, this period, this, this pruning has happened to make you more receptive to learning, but the learning has to be done by trial and error. So you essentially have to become like 
like I call it putting on your mum a scientist hat and you have to start doing all of the trial and error things to see when you notice this behaviour or this little like twitch of their face or whatever, what what is it that they are trying to tell you and the response that they want to that. And you have to trial and error that so many times and eventually you see what things work. And it might be three different things at work but you don't now have to try the other 17 out of 20 because you know that your baby doesn't like that stuff. And so by the time baby's like three, six months old, it might look to people on the outside like you're doing things on autopilot and that they think that you're a natural and that you can just mind read the baby. But it's actually that you've done all of the scientific experiments before and you're just going through the things that you know are more likely to work. The only way that you get to do any of that stuff is by spending time with your baby and practicing it, not being forced into these really rigid, like, you know, you must follow this exact hour by hour playbook of what to do with your baby or they'll turn into a manipulative psychopath. You have to actually have time to practice all of these things. And anybody else who is going to be involved in the baby's life that needs to develop confidence in parenting needs time to develop that too. So how useful is that when mothers are, you know, put to say if they have an awful birthing experience, how useful is that going to be for their capacity to like trust themselves to trial and error with their baby? If they're having problems with breastfeeding and somebody who's in a position of power or who should be helping them, a health professional, for example, says, well, you'll need to top up with a bottle instead of just like being with them and helping. How helpful is it when you're in the hospital for a couple of days and then everybody comes to visit for the first week or two and then suddenly dad's back at work and you're like, well, like how is he ever going to learn to do any of this stuff that he needs to do to be a capable parent? And all this does is reinforce that dads are less capable than mums are, so therefore mums must be the naturals at it. And then the next mum has her baby and she feels like she's not a natural, so she must be broken. And it's the social things that are perpetuating the cycle because we don't understand the biological process and because we're tricked into thinking this is just the way it is. And it's not. That really is such a thought-provoking discussion, isn't it? Because when you're talking about dads, absolutely, they don't get the time with their babies to do the trial and error, to really get to know their babies. So therefore... They wind up just handing it back to mum because mum seems to perhaps have it under more control than they feel that they do. So they lose confidence and might start to pull back. And mum winds up feeling like it's all on her because she's the one who's had had the practice and all of that kind of thing. But also what I'm hearing in there is that as we make these trial and as we do this trial and error, which is actually what we need to do, we're going to make errors. We're going to have times where we don't get it right, where we feel like we don't know the answer, we can't find out the answer. Is it in that moment that we wind up feeling like we're broken, that we, this should be easier, that we should just get it right first try? Or that instead, if we could actually see that this is just trial and error and this is what we have to do, this is how it works. Do you think just, just reframing it like that feels like that's really empowering for women to know you do have to go through the trial and error and it's okay? I think knowing that makes a really big difference, yeah. Um, I think also knowing just how much support is meant to be there to raise a baby that isn't there. I think knowing that just because you're tired doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong is important. 
I think knowing that the way our society based on the dollar is set up is that it's somebody's job to invent a problem so that they can sell you a solution. I think knowing that just because you are, if you are the parent that is staying at home with the baby, just because you are at home, knowing that your job is keeping the baby safe and cared for is your job and going to paid work is the other person's job and that doesn't automatically leave either of you with responsibility for the house. That's an important thing to know because what is what sort of happened historically is that, say, in the 1950s, kind of post-war period, a good woman was a good wife and she kept a good clean house and beyond the early, like the very first infant year or whatever, children were kind of seen and not heard, right, and sent outside to play. And right, like rightly or wrongly, this is kind of just how it went. And then, and then as time goes on and women's, like the pill comes in and women get more rights to be at work and to study, we start taking on all of these responsibilities. And then like attachment parenting theory is more known about, you know, creating safety and secure attachment with the child, which is obviously very important. Um, but all of these things, like, just get laid on top of the, the good housewife responsibility. So then you're, you need to be a good housewife and, um, and have a good education and be a good worker and be an attached mother and, and also be financially independent because, you know, we grew up like singing Beyonce, I don't need a man to make it happen. But actually, like, you actually do need people to make it happen. You know, the idea of it takes to raise a village, it takes a village to raise a child is true, and it, we need a village to raise a mother, and it's being lost. And it's up to. It sucks because I want to like go. No, let's change. Let's change everything and have this support inbuilt and blah blah. But no one's going to come in and swoop in and rescue us. So like we're in the generation that is going to be the most pressured. You know, even the fact that because of, I don't know, the Howard government making investment properties a really like lucrative thing means that now you can't survive on one income, so it needs to be one and a half incomes and that chipping away of parenting support through welfare and things has happened so that financially, like we're, or we're always kind of in the squeeze. It's a, like, yeah, it's bigger than us, but also no one except us is going to come in and make a change on it unless we're being loud about what we need. And we've been trained out of knowing what we need and we've been trained out of speaking what we need, how to ask for it, how to accept help because our whole life we've been conditioned to like, you know, study hard and do your work and then you'll get good grades and then you'll get a good job and you won't need a man to make it happen. You know, but also wear a nice dress and, um, and you know, don't don't be too much, but don't be too too little either. You know, just be good. Be good girls. <laughs> don't be too quiet. Don't be too loud. Don't be too much. Don't be too little. Don't be too. And also be grateful. Also be grateful. You know, this is really really hard. So what we're going to do is then mean it. Um, it'll mean that the groceries still need to get done, which you then also have to cook while you also are juggling a baby who possibly hates the car and may or may not like being in the trolley or may need a feed right in the middle of it and be screaming and you do and then you get to the checkout and some 
you haven't slept in days and you've just been vomited on twice that morning and the car seat's got poo on it and the lady at the checkout like 80 looks at you and says oh these are the best years of your life and you're like are you kidding me <laughs> do you have any idea do, what i've got do you know morning? how hard it is to just get my kid to get to school on time and i'm also here with the baby yeah. anyway <laughs> i'm a bit worked up it's so true about that double bind isn't it if you as a mum, if you you have to if you don't ask for help you're a martyr but if you ask for help you're not coping unless unless you're putting yourself last unless you're putting yourself last and self-sacrificing the the only alternative is that, is that you're selfish yes that's right you know you have to choose you can't you can't just be a normal functioning human, you must be selfless or selfish. Yes, absolutely. And it also then comes into play, doesn't it, when we, uh, you know, if, if we have the freedom to make a choice about whether or not we go back to work, but if you go back to work, you're a career person who doesn't care about her kids, but if you don't go back to work, you're a, um, what are you doing with those degrees that you got? And, you know, what are you even doing at home? Like you said, you're a leech, you're just relying on other people to support you. And it's like you, you cannot win, which whatever you do, mm. you feel judged for making a choice, and but you have to make a choice. It's this real bottleneck, this real bottleneck, because a lot of women that I speak with have feel like they've done the internal work on themselves before they have children and then once they are mothers they're not only faced with a whole lot of new layers that they never knew were there but it's they're trying to deal with that stuff along with the actual demands of their children's needs which are fair enough because they're children and the social you know like you're in, you feel like you're in the spotlight all the time that you are constantly being judged and I mentioned this in my book, but there's a line in um in the movie The Usual Suspect where the guy says about that the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist, and it's pretty much how like that patriarchal version of motherhood has been drip fed to us through every ad and every interaction that we've had through our lives of what a good mother is. That it's so it's so insidious that we start policing ourselves in our own mind about that we should do this or we should do that. And like, I'm pretty well versed in this stuff, but I will still, you know, like I still had the, I should get her to sleep in her own bed kind of thought. I should, I should make her wait a bit longer because she only fed like half an hour ago. It's like, no, I know this stuff. Like those shoulds come in thick and fast, don't they? But it's because I know the stuff, I can check myself and make my own decisions. Whereas otherwise, if we're just, Unless we know, we will continually feel broken and we'll continually be perpetuating a cycle that we are the ones with the power to break. If you could wave a magic wand and fix one thing for mums or change one thing about motherhood, to do with motherhood, what would it be? Wow. So there are two options. I can't choose between these two. So one of them, one of them is proper continuity of midwifery care where women get receive the gold standard midwifery care um, or maternity care, sorry. Currently in Australia, only 8% of women receive gold standard care. And that leaves 92% of mothers entering motherhood through their first or subsequent, subsequent birth 
with subpar care, um, where there is unlikely to be the same person doing their pre and postnatal appointments, attending their birth. How are you meant to create a culture of trust if that is the case? Um, and you'll um, and that extends to you know we need to be giving that continuity of midwifery care in culturally appropriate ways. Um, under the direction of the people who are actually from that culture that know what they need, you know? Like birthing on country programs for Aboriginal women are so successful that, they're successful that their outcomes are actually better than the general population rate of when they receive gold standard care, but they're not being funded, you know? So it's a, it's a case of like, we know what works, we just have to do it. And if you possibly can, please get yourself to a screening of birth time, the documentary. Um, I went to a premier Q&A session last week and it was absolutely mind-boggling and it is very powerful on the screen. Can you say what it was called again? I missed, I missed what you said it was called. It's called Birth Time, the documentary. Birth Time, the documentary, okay. Yeah, and there's, even if you only get to watch the trailer of it on YouTube, yeah. like, do it. Really powerful. Okay. So, um, and yeah, they're... they're They've won like 23 international documentary film festival awards for it and it's, it's for a reason. It's wow. really good and it tells us exactly what we need to do. To The question is how can we help every woman enter motherhood feeling safe and satisfied or something like that, mm. safe and empowered Instead or something of like that. traumatised and then having to yeah. begin her matrescence, this yeah. period of growing into a whole new person and growing a person at the same time from a place of disempowerment and trauma, which and, is what happens to so many women. And, yeah, yeah. And it is a lot. It's like a third of the, uh, the women reports have been traumatic in Australia. It's really, really high. So gold standard care would be the first thing because that sets people off on the right foot. The second one that comes to mind is we need to overhaul parental pay, parental leave. The Finnish model, for example, gives seven months of full pay leave to the birth parent and a non-birth parent or carer that's not transferable. So it can't be that one person ends up taking 14 months of paid leave and the other one stays at work the whole time. It's seven months each. And if you don't take it, then it's forfeited. And, the, and it can be taken at the same time. So that, that family could have seven months together at full pay learning how to be a family for every child that they have. So that's the most, like that's the most, I want to say most, most generous, but it's probably like the most respectful model that is around globally at the moment. In Australia, companies will generally offer one week of paid partner pay at their normal rate. The Australian government gives two weeks of pay, of minimum wage pay. The uptake of that is very small. I think it's less than a quarter of partners take that up because it's not enough to cover costs or because they are not supported by their workplace to take it up because that's something that sensitive new age guys do and don't you know that you need to be a responsible breadwinner now and um, that will cost you your chance of a promotion, which is pretty much just like, you know, showing them what it would be like to imagine if you had to take a whole year off and how that would be. 
um, which is their mother's experience. But, um, yeah, we need to overhaul that big time because we're, we're just, as I said before, we're setting families up to be disconnected from the start. In traditional postpartum care across the world, pretty much every culture has around a six-week period where the mother does nothing except for rest and feed the baby. People bathe and massage her and feed her and help her with absolutely everything else. Literally all she does is rest and feed and bond with her baby. And we're sending women home to an empty house. And then when a partner gets home and is, you know, she thinks, oh, great, now I've got someone to help me because of the system and the way that patriarchy and masculinity is operating currently, they don't know how to be helpful. And what a shock that there ends up being resentment and, you know, postnatal depression actually peaks four years after the birth of the first child, not in the first couple of weeks. It's later. It's when you're running on empty after all that time when you think, like, shouldn't this be easier by now? And where is the help that I need? And just not there. And that pressure of I should be on top of things by now. The house should be tidy. I should, I should be back at work. I should be doing all of these things, you know, all of that. I can tell you that, like, my daughter's nearly two and I can tell you that, like, right now I'm in a patch of this week feels, like, probably harder than the newborn period did and it's going to be different next week again. Next week I'll probably be on top of the world and, like, you know, feel like I've got everything under control again. But I can feel that I have everything under control when my house is a pigsty because I know it's not just my responsibility. Everybody who lives in this house has a responsibility to this house. Everybody who lives in this house has a responsibility to, you know, to make sure that food is made, to make sure that things are cleaned up, to make sure that bills are paid so our gas doesn't get disconnected. Like We're all in this together, all of it. We share all of it. And that expectation has been set from the start. And so being clear on what those expectations are, I think that becomes a whole lot, I think that would become a whole lot clearer and more equitable if partner leave was overhauled from the start. And if anyone's interested in that, I wrote a piece last Father's Day on my blog um, about, uh, yeah, okay. about sort of how fathers are framed and how mothers are friends and how it's all set up. <laughs> what role do you think social media plays in our experience of motherhood? It's a really interesting question because I think, yeah, I can see that in some ways it helps me to be really connected to other people. You know, I've made friends based on the parenting values that I share through social media that otherwise I wouldn't have found. Those groups don't exist in my local area. So I can see how they are so connecting. I can also see how they could potentially be very, very guilt-inducing and really triggering as well. Like I remember I actually screenshotted them all because I thought it was so interesting. One of the big parenting, like, yeah, like mama wellbeing kind of parenting magazines on their social media account. It was just before I started writing the book. In the space of one morning, they posted four like quote card things, and they were they were things like, "Your children don't want a perfect mum; they just want a happy one." And I was like, "Okay, so how 
does that make you feel if you're not happy right now? Does that then make you feel like an ineffectual mother? Not just ineffectual, but actually I can't, I can't measure up measure up at all can I I can't even give them that you're saying they just want me happy I can't even be that (laughs) yeah Yeah, exactly and then it was one like obviously they haven't listened to you Carolyn but and any other like you know playful parenting kind of resource but like the difficulty of getting children ready and out the door to school and to daycare and how like something like how she would cry in the car after dropping them off but you know you knew that she was giving her children the the best by going to work to earn the income or whatever and it's like I would lay down I lay down my own feelings for theirs and stuff like that and it's like well all of these things are accepted as mainstream beliefs but they're all conflicting like we can't actually if you if you win for want of a better word at one of them you fail at a different one you know there's the idea that because because our society is set up on on winners and losers as well it's not the idea that if i win everybody wins it's that if i win the other people must lose and if i win the people that lose are my children and my husband and the people who are providing care for my children, everybody else loses. But what if it's a case of if I win because I am feeling really passionate and lit up and wonderful because I get a chance to write this book that obviously these angry thoughts and swirling thoughts need to get out of my head and go somewhere. If I actually get a chance to do that and then bring my really, my real enthusiasm back the environment with my daughter then how good is that going to be for the fun that we have together instead of me just like feeling angry with her because there's nowhere for my anger to go how much does it help that I don't look at my partner with resentment because he gets to go to work and have it easy because the parenting is a hard job and the going to work is the easy bit because it gives him a chance to do that when he gets home and I get to go and do what I want to do too how much does it actually give my sister and my friends who don't have children yet who come and play with my kids if I ask them to, that they're happy to do that for an hour? How much does that actually help them know what being with a child is like if they go on to have children? Because for the most part, modern mothers don't, the first baby that they hold a lot of the time is their own. How much is this actually gifting to other people by me spending an hour or two doing the exact thing that I want to do. And caring is a rewarding, satisfying thing to do. Caring for babies. Caring, like if you ever spend time with a person who's dying, like there is nowhere more sacred that you could be than with someone who's dying or someone who's giving birth. Like you walk out of somewhere like that and you see everybody doing their normal stuff and you're just like, what is going on? Why is the world still turning and everyone on their little like ants go marching two by two like this is exactly the path that you must follow to do life thing? It's like where did we miss this real reverence? It's interesting, isn't it? So before we talked about if you had a magic wand, what's one thing you would fix about motherhood? If you had a magic wand and you could, or you have your book, maybe your book is actually your magic wand, What's the one thing that you want every mum to know? If you could implant it into, every, the, into the head of every single mum, what would it be? I want them to know that they are as whole, complete, perfect, brilliant, 
radiant pure as their children are. That's what I want them to know. And I, I think you're right. I think they make this one the book. <laughs> well, thank you so much for saying yes and for spending time with us today. And I can't wait to get my hands on your book and have a read of it when it's ready. So it will be available worldwide on on Amazon in ebook form and paperback form as well. Um, and you can get it from my website as well at anarchyback.com.au. Okay, so I'm going to say the name of it again so that people can remember what book they're searching for. So it's Anna Cusack and her book is called Mama, You're Not Broken, Unmasking the Unspoken Emotions of Modern Motherhood. And it's due for release in April. And also you have your podcast as well. So let's mention your podcast, Motherhood Made Magic, which we can find at anacusack.com.au. And we can also follow you on your socials at, at anacusack postpartum. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Caroline. Thanks again for joining me for Safer Stronger Kids, the podcast. If you'd like to find out more about what I do, check out my website, saferstrongerkids.com. Follow me on Facebook, Caroline Ellen, Safer Stronger Kids, and Instagram at Safer Stronger. Can't wait to talk to you again next time.